0: does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q-certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free
1: Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Hubler has it all.
0: Last night, Purdue taking care of Indiana and doing so in big fashion. Joining us now on the program to talk about that, he is the Radio voice of the Boilermakers, Rob Blackman. And Rob, I'll begin with this. Uh, Zach Eady last night was sensational. He has been that way for the vast majority of the last few years for Purdue, clearly. And I thought Fletcher Lawyer showed some real growth from games that he would have had a year ago. And by that, I mean kind of knowing what was a good shot and what was not. He shot the ball very well last night. But give me a player or two that, when you look at the box score, to use the old proverb of this isn't a guy that jumps out but that you looked at it and said you know what that guy really had a good game and Matt Painter had to be happy with what he did not name Fletcher Lawyer and not name Zach Eady
1: uh, I would give you two names I would start with Lance Jones and I know he had 17 points so it, that's an easy one but he just seemed to make so many game-winning plays for Purdue last night especially in transition you know, he had a couple of outs there in the second half for layups that Purdue does not make that play last year because they don't have that player on their team. They don't have a guy who can run fast enough to outrun the rest of the defense and score a layup at the other end. Uh, he has been a huge difference maker weeks. I don't remember the exact number, Jake, so I'll apologize. We had it last night on the pregame show, but I've already forgotten. But it was fast break points compared to, from last year to this year. And, again, I don't remember the exact number, but Purdue has more fast-break points right now, this season, at this point this juncture in the season, than they had all of last year for the entire year. Uh, And that's mainly because of Lance Jones. Purdue finally has a guy that can get out and run and get you transition buckets, easy buckets. Uh, The other guy I would give you is Ethan Morton. Um, Played 13 minutes, only scored two points without making a basket, actually. Uh, It was because of a goaltending call. But defensively, what he was able to do early in the second half when Trey Galloway got going there, made those back-to-back threes in the second half, and you really started this. It felt like the momentum was really turning on the side of Indiana. Ethan Morton was subbed into the game at that point, if you remember, and then really did a good job on Trey Galloway of of at least slowing him down enough where he just single-handedly couldn't take over the game because you felt like at that point he might just do that. Uh, So those are the two guys I would give you there that I thought – well, As far as the guys you mentioned that, you know, that aren't, aren't named Zach Eadie or, or Fletcher Lawyer, I thought those two guys were really, really playing at a high level last night.
0: It is, Rob, totally unfair of me to ask you about Indiana because you don't cover Indiana, right? So I'm going to ask you a question about Purdue that I'm saying is a backslide to Indiana. I'm not pinning that on you as the voice of the Boilers, but I want you to, to offer this perspective about Purdue. There was a point in the game where Zach Eadie's energy level, his willingness to give up his own skin and knees for a loose ball, et cetera, was on display. And Indiana, and a guy like Khalil Ware, that at times feels like he's, you know, kind of sleepwalking his way through, there there was a different energy level. It's in Indiana, you got 15,000 of the 17,000 there are decked out in white. They're screaming for Indiana. Yet Purdue showed an ability to play from buzzer to buzzer at the same level, same intensity, and same focus. What is it about Purdue's practices, about Purdue's culture, that forces them or allows them or instills in them that when they go into a game, it is all hands on deck, all the time from beginning to end?
1: Well, uh, that's uh, maybe a difficult answer, a lengthy answer, but I guess I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version here. The Matt Painter uh, coaching style, uh, if you will, is very similar to the Gene Cady coaching style in that uh, if you are not playing as hard as you can possibly play at all times, you do not play in the game. <laughs> you sit on the bench beside the coach. Uh, unless it's a very, very uh, rare instance, uh, that, that is the case. And so I do believe uh, there certainly is something to that, knowing that, look, uh, well, I'm not going to play hard. I'm not going to play. There's also something to the fact uh, the fact that Purdue is a pretty deep ball club. You know, I know uh, Miles Colvin didn't get a lot of run last night, but he he has this season. And when he is playing, you know, Purdue is 10 deep and and 10 guys that can play. So, again, if you're not playing hard, you just won't play because there's someone else that can take your place at at all five positions. Um, So I think that's part of it. I would also say this as far as just looking at specifically last night's game. You have to remember Zach Eady. In Mason Gillis, in in Ethan Morton, the senior class, those guys have lost their last two games in Bloomington. Um, they've lost three of their last four going into that game against Indiana. But they would, those guys have been court stormed not once but twice in Bloomington the last two years. So there was some added motivation. Make no mistake about it, going into that game, that they would like to you know finally beat Indiana in Bloomington uh, because they had not been having a lot of success with that. So. You add on top of that, you're already extra motivated because you're sick and tired of getting court-stormed in Bloomington. And you have really good players who know that if they don't play hard, they don't get a play. Uh, all of a sudden, yeah, you can, I think you can find yourself pretty easily self-motivated uh, if you're in that situation.
2: Rob Blackman, nice enough to take some time with us at the Purdue Radio Network. Rob, this Purdue team as a whole, and you mentioned the guards, I know superstitious Purdue fans might not want to hear this, and yes, the draw is so Indicative of what could be a happy March versus another depressing early exit, but I feel like this team, like many national pundits, is a second weekend, is a Final Four style of team. When you look at the growth of the guards year over year, do you view them as the same category in that specific position group as you would, say, a UConn in terms of if they were to match up against them or have a matchup in the tournament where guard play is equal or better? Has the growth been that significant that they belong in that conversation?
1: Haven't seen UConn with my own two eyes, Jimmy. So I I can only reference what I have seen in as far as great, what I would consider great guard play. And that would be Arizona and Purdue certainly held its own against, against those guys, Fletcher Lawyer and Brayton Smith from both, both fantastic in that game. Braden, I think, had 26 points, and Fletch, I think, ended up with 27. So at least from what I've seen with my own two eyes, as far as what I would consider the highest level of guard play in the country, and that would be, again, Arizona, yeah, I do feel pretty good about about that matchup. Now, it also, I would counter, though, with this, it, the two games that Purdue has lost this year, it's because the other team's guard play was just at another level. boo uh, boo uh, in Northwestern, uh, they were just at Tyberry, uh, uh, um, uh, Sherberg. I think I'm, I hope the same is the name correctly. Those three guys are at another level. Uh, I think they combined for I don't know 70 some points against Purdue in that win at Northwestern. And then we saw the same thing at Nebraska, uh, where they were uh, they were outstanding from from especially a three point shooting perspective. Uh, it started with tomei Naga. Uh, but but quite frankly, C.J. Wilcher was also really good in the second half. My point being, when Purdue has lost, which hasn't been often this year, only twice, the other team's guard play was at an absolute another level. Um, so it, I guess what I'm saying is it certainly it can happen. We saw it happen last year against Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, but to answer your question directly, yes, I do feel really good about Purdue's guard play. Uh, Again, especially when they've gone head-to-head against what I consider to be the best in the country in Arizona.
2: Rob Blackman is our guest. Rob, there were times, and I think this would have been maybe 2012, maybe 2013, give or take, and it's been few and far between, right? But there were times where impatience and chatter amongst the fan base at Purdue made it seem like the university probably never felt this way, the athletic department probably never felt this way, But it felt like there was at one point in time over the last 15 years a hot seat moment or two for Matt Painter. But Purdue had the foresight or maybe they never wavered in their mission of this is the guy. We're going to give him time. We're going to let him build the proper culture. We're going to let him build recruiting classes. And we're going to let him turn Purdue into a steady horse in the national conversation. When you look to your counterparts to the South and I understand that maybe those would push back and say expectations are different down in Indiana and it needs to be win now or get out of town. Is there something to be said about it's only been four seasons? Yes, the transfer portal was there, but maybe at some point it's time to give a longer leash and let a culture really be established or reestablished again. Do you you believe in that philosophy and do you feel like that well-served Purdue – over maybe times where there were whispers of doubts about matt painter
1: well i won't uh jimmy i won't speak to indiana's situation because i'm obviously not close to that i only see it from afar like everyone else but you are correct on on coach paint i mean here look here are the hard facts and i think i remember this correctly 2013 purdue i think finished two games below 500 2014 I'm almost certain Purdue finished two games below 500. So you went back to back years where you didn't even reach 500 uh, for your season. That first year, Purdue played in the CBI, lost in a home game in the CBI, and then the next year didn't even play in any type of postseason uh, action. So uh, if ever there were a time for the administration to, uh, yeah, say maybe this isn't the right direction for the program, it would have been that. Uh, but they did not. Uh, and you no know, give some give credit to, to to the late Morgan Burke who was the athletic director at that point uh, for sticking with coach Painter and giving him an opportunity to to turn that thing around and obviously it's worked because uh, Purdue's been to the tournament every single year ex- except for the COVID year uh, when no one went to the tournament since then so my point being look I every situation is unique and different I have no idea what's going on inside the the hallways of of Assembly Hall and Indiana University, so I'm not going to speak to that. But yes, from a Purdue standpoint, I think it's safe to say it worked out just fine. I mean, think about this: with that win last night, Matt Painter tied Lou Henson uh, for uh, for fifth most uh, wins ever, Big Ten games only in the history of the Big Ten. So think about that. <laughs> so, so you had a guy who back in the you know, 2012 2013 was having troubles just finding his way to 500. Well, now you have a guy that is now the fifth most winningest coach in the history of Big Ten basketball. So certainly patience paid off in that particular instance for Purdue. Um, and, uh, again, that's all I'll speak to is Purdue's Purdue side of things because it, seem, it seemed to have worked out quite well here, especially these last handful of years where not only is Purdue playing at a magical level, but, I mean, my gosh, you've been ranked number one in the country now for three straight seasons. Uh, that, that, that's, that is a reward there, obviously, For saying you're stuck with Matt Painter through the tough times, and now you're seeing you're reaping the rewards of that here uh, later in his career.
0: Rob, which was more Rob Blackman, the voice of the Purdue Boilermakers, is our guest. Which to you last night was more impressive: the efficiency that Purdue played, especially late in the first, to kind of get themselves that halftime cushion, or the response they had towards Indiana getting the lead within single digits and Purdue then pushing it back up, back over 20.
1: Yeah, not so surprised offensively with the way Purdue handled its business, especially late in the first half. I mean, look, Purdue is the number two team in the country in adjusted, adjusted offensive efficiency. Purdue is normally really, really good on the offensive end. They, they have been all season. The numbers would bear that out. Um, but even in the second half, Jake, you know, and, and Coach Paint talked to us about this on our postgame interview even though Indiana cut that thing to nine there early in the second half, if you go back and look at Purdue's first three possessions offensively, they were great possessions. They just missed shots. Uh, you had three open shots. I think it was two hook shots, I think, by Zach and, and an open three. Um, so you ran good offense. You got a great shot all three times. You just missed them. And wouldn't you know it, you go to the other end, and Indiana makes a couple of shots from guys that, let's be honest, had not been making shots. I mean, Ray Galloway comes into that game as a 27% three-point shooter and knocks in back-to-back threes. So you felt, even though that, even though that deficit got cut to nine, at least me personally, I still never felt like you know Purdue's in trouble here. Purdue's running great offense, they're getting open shots. The law of averages says you're going to start making those shots. Who's the best field goal percentage team in the Big Ten? So if water is going to find its level, then you'll eventually start making those shots, which they did. And when you look at Indiana's numbers, they have not been a good a good shooting team this year. Across the board, they haven't been good at shooting the basketball. So you figured again, water eventually going to find its level, and it did. Um, so yeah, I just I know a lot of Purdue fans got a little nervous there early in the second half. Uh, but to be very honest, I just kind of felt like, hey, this, this is going fine for Purdue. They're getting the shots they want. They're you know they're eventually going to make them. Indiana's probably shooting the ball a little better that now than they. They're going to the rest of the ball game, which turned out to be true. So that's just kind of how I looked at those, really those first, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of the second half.
0: And what's next on the docket now for Purdue, Rob? I don't have the schedule right in front of me.
1: Sure, sure. At Iowa, 2 o'clock Saturday. Uh, Purdue beat Iowa earlier in the year. That was way back in early December. Uh, beat them pretty handily, 87-68. So Iowa's always a different animal at home, though, because of their off, how good they are offensively. They're not – They're not a good defensive team. They would be the first to admit that. But they do have enough firepower to outscore you and beat you in a a track meet. So that just will be another challenge, man. Welcome to the Big Ten.
0: Rob, appreciate the time as always. And certainly you said at Iowa, right? You got to get some made rights. Are you going to get made rights in Iowa?
1: You know what? My biggest concern and my biggest beef right now with Iowa City, uh, my all-time favorite restaurant in there, the Iowa River Power Company, they shut their doors in early December. They are no longer in business. So my favorite restaurant in Iowa City is closed. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do now. I'm a little I'm a little disappointed. Have
0: you that, had actually. made rights? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I thought we got one. Maybe you weren't with us when we were at Iowa once in Marshalltown, not far from Newton. Uh, I mean, if you got to go 45 minutes to Marshalltown, I'm sure they got a made right in Iowa City. But it's a loose meat sandwich. are they have them in Ohio, but they're basically an Iowa thing and you got to get just just i'm telling you right now made right just go in and say i need a, a made right um juicy with cheese and then you'll text me and say that i'm a hero <laughs> hold on i'm writing this down made right juicy or or wet cheap. just say wet that means wet. like they okay. put the 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 grease meat in with it
1: ooh wet. i it, love a, i love a good grease meat
0: and then you get the then you get the cheese over the top of it and then afterwards, I'll give you Dr. Mottman's name, the cardiologist that I use. <laughs> yes, chunks of lard floating <laughs> through my veins. That's right. That's right. We'll get you taken care of, Rob. You know I do you right. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. All Thank right. You. Enjoy, man. We'll talk to you. <laughs> See you, guys. Uh, Rob Blackman, the voice of the Purdue Boilermakers. Uh, joining us now on the program, Matt Miller is a draft analyst for ESPN. Matt, before we get into the draft, I I guess because it's the elephant in the room, and I certainly am not under any sort of expectation that you would be an expert regarding NFL ownership and Jim Irsay and the TMZ report and those things. Generically speaking, I guess I'll say that. Do you think that the league, as we know that Jim Irsay is hospitalized, according to the Indianapolis Colts, with a respiratory illness, we know that he, based on the TMZ report, overdosed on December 8th, But he was at the Colts game on December the 16th. So it does not appear as though this hospitalization is at least in continuous related to the December 8th overdose situation. But generically speaking, the league itself, when it comes to owners and owners that have health situations, does the league get involved in any way, shape, or form over the length of time if an owner is not able to be around their franchise on a day-to-day?
3: Yeah, I think that's a situation where it's almost like the government. You need continuity of government, right? And so I think it's uh, what is the plan? You know, who is assuming day-to-day control? Obviously, you know, Chris Ballard is, is there and is, you know, serving as the general manager, and, and that part of it is is running. But what about the business side? And I think that's the side where there's not as much um, I was, transparency, team-to-team, you know, of, okay, who who steps up if – the owners incapacitated for, for an amount of time. And I I think, you know, we've seen that with some of the other teams Uh, I know in Buffalo, uh, you know, the owner had to take some time off because of a health uh, issue. And they said, okay, well that's a husband wife team running, running the show there at Buffalo. So it's, they've got the husband to take care of things while the wife is incapacitated. So um, the league has got to be involved. And I'm, I'm sure, You know, from a player standpoint, the league is so involved anytime anything like, you know, is going on off the field. Um, I know with ownership, we haven't seen the same uh, standards, I would say, uh, towards, you know, what's expected of them off the field or away from the field. But, yeah, I would think the NFL has a lot more information than any of us have at this time. And I'm like you guys, you know, I saw the I saw the tweet this morning. And have been I've been looking at you know people I follow who cover the Colts on a daily basis to see what information they have about there.
0: I guess the other question, Matt, and, and I don't want to put you in a bad spot, so feel free to say, dude, I have no idea because maybe it is different from team to team. I don't know. Um, when it comes to like transfer of ownership, I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay, do leases that teams have with cities and those sorts of things typically bind? From one owner to the next, or do they kind of get? Does that go out the window when there is a change in ownership?
3: The only situation I'm aware of where, like, where I know what happened was when uh, Robert Kraft bought the Patriots, and he bought basically he got all the leases. You know, it comes with it. So that would be a really good question. Um, I think you could, you know, maybe look at something like Carolina, Denver. You know, those would be the most recent teams where you could look at that and say, okay, what happened? you know, uh, what, 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 happened with those leases? Because that would be, that was definitely a really interesting question. Yeah. So like, I'm, if I wanted to buy too, like, te- I want to dig in on that too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like, if I wanted to buy a team, for example, let's just say Matt, you and I, you hit the powerball tomorrow and you call me and you go, Hey man, you were super cool on the radio together. So let's go into <laughs> ownership. And I go, yeah, cool. So, yeah. And, and so you say, listen, I've got, I've got a team that I want to buy and it is in, um, you know, Charlotte. And I say, you know, I'm more of an IndyCar than a NASCAR guy. I don't know that I want a team in Charlotte. We can't just buy them, theoretically, and move it. We would basically, one would assume, have to honor whatever the right. agreement is with Charlotte until it expires, right? That's how I understand it, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right, let's get to the draft. I'm curious about this. Colts are going to be drafting, you know, we know now, two-thirds of the way through you know, the respective round because they had a good year. Um The Colts have needs in a lot of areas. I'll begin with the generic question, which would be this, Matt Miller. You are, if you are an owner or a general manager looking at this draft, you are salivating if you're a guy with a need at what position because this draft is richest where?
3: Wide receiver. And uh, I'm not just saying that because you are a super cool guy on the radio I like to talk to. But uh, wide receiver is it. And I, I sent out a, a. If people are still on Twitter or X or whatever you call that, I, I tweeted this yesterday. We can see three wide receivers and three quarterbacks going the first six picks of this draft. I mean, it is an incredibly deep wide receiver draft. It's also incredibly talented. So normally we would say, oh, it's deep at wide receiver. There could be seven, eight guys in the first round. That is true. But it's also that top-end talent, Marvin Harrison, Jr., Malik Neighbors, Roma Dunze. I have those three guys ranked in my top six players overall. So it is a great year for wide receiver play. And then I would say, you know, that Tier 2, Keon Coleman at Florida State, Adnai Mitchell, and Xavier Worthy from Texas, Brian Thomas, Jr. from LSU. Uh, it, is, it is a really, really good uh, wide receiver class. It's a really good offensive tackle class. I think we could see 32 picks in the first round, Half those could be wide receivers and offensive tackles, and it wouldn't surprise me.
2: Matt Miller is our guest, covers the NFL draft at large for ESPN. Matt, you mentioned wide receiver being the treasure of riches for teams, especially in the first round. You mentioned the crown jewel as well in Marvin Harrison Jr. So rapid fire to kind of get to the big question, where do you have him pegged right now? I know it's January, but where do you have him pegged in terms of position where he's likely to go?
3: Yeah, he's my number two overall player, so he's not going to be there uh, at 15. No, obviously, not, obviously. That's not going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, he should go. Even understanding we're probably going to see quarterbacks go one, two. I think at three, the New England Patriots is where that conversation starts, depending on what they're going to do. A quarterback, we'll see. They just announced, you know, Gerard Mayo is head coach today. They don't have a general manager. So I think three with New England is where you at least start having that conversation about, Hey, we need a quarterback, but this guy's generationally talented. You really can't can't go wrong here. I think he's I think he's the safest player in the draft. Like the, the one guy where you draft him in the worst case scenario is he's just really really good. You know, with Caleb Williams, with quarterbacks, as you guys know, there's always the boomer bust factor for every quarterback. And Indy drafted arguably the greatest quarterback prospect in the last fifty years in Andrew Luck, and there was a lot of good, a lot of bad or not a lot of bad. there was some bad, um, and, and his career didn't last very long. So there's always going to be that scenario with quarterbacks. With these wide receivers, like if Harrison's not an all-pro,
4: I'll be shocked.
2: What would be, and I'm not saying the Colts are going to do this, but the joking speculation has been around since Marvin Harrison Jr. stepped onto the scene a couple of years ago. So let's say it's just a generic team, say, I don't know, picking 15th or 16th. If they wanted <laughs> to move up for a player like Marvin Harrison Jr., what is the cost, A, in your mind, assuming we're just talking about draft capital, and B, is his generational talent worth the cost compared to the overall depth of the wide receiver class as it pertains to the first round?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the cost is going to be multiple first-round picks, to go from a generic hypothetical pick, a, a 15 or, or so overall, to get... I mean, you would have to go to two to ensure you get him. And that's just, yeah, you're talking multiple first round picks, you know, that's a, that's a trade you only make for a quarterback. And so the second part of your question is, is he talented enough to justify the cost? Not in a situation where we do have a year with historically good wide receiver talent, in my opinion. And also, I mean, Malik neighbor's would be the number one receiver in almost every draft class other than this one. Uh, Roma Dunze would be the number one receiver in almost every draft class except for this one. Keon Coleman, uh, you know, would be in play in most draft classes. He would be wide receiver one or wide receiver two, I think. So it's just a, it's such a talented year that I don't think you can justify the trade to two. Uh, not if you are going to lose Michael Pittman Jr. And free agency, or even if you can keep him and say, Hey, we just, we got Josh Downs, we got Pittman, but we need another guy. You're still you're looking at like Arizona at four, the Chargers at five, the Giants at six, the Titans at seven, Atlanta. Every wide receiver in Atlanta is a preseason, except for Drake London. Uh, Chicago at nine, the Jets at ten. Like every team needs a wide receiver from four to ten. So it's it, the bad news for the Colts is we could see a very you know quick run of wide receiver talent.
0: Now, Matt Matt Miller, ESPN, is our guest. I'm assuming that you come to Indy for the combines, correct? absolutely yeah okay so are you required and and this is you live in what city if you don't mind me asking i live in joplin missouri joplin missouri okay Uh, i have a friend from joplin missouri by the way um okay so joplin that's the hometown of mark twain is it not or is that hannibal Uh, missouri
3: that's hannibal other side of the state sorry
0: okay so let's we'll just say kansas city okay So Carmel, Indiana is like the Overland Park of Kansas City, just to give you a a reference here, right? It's the suburb. Now in Carmel, Indiana, if you're coming in town for the combine, there's a a bar and restaurant. Now it says it's temporarily closed. That might be due to construction, but there's a joint called Matt the Miller's. Are you required to go there?
3: (laughs) I've never been. I get sent that photo all the time. I think there are some in Ohio as well, um, because people will send me that photo on, on social media. Um, and all the time, I'm like, "Hey, is this your? Like, is this your spot?" I'm like, "I've never been, but I got to go one of these days." I'd I gotta, go in there and throw my weight around, around
0: a little bit, right? I mean, you, right. you got to, right? Surely you get a free beer if they like read your driver's I would license, hope, and it, right? You
3: know, that would be great.
0: <laughs> and it's yeah. got to be a Miller, by the way. Uh, okay, so <laughs> Matt, uh, the opposite question of the one from which I let off, and that is this: You are going into this draft, the 2024 NFL draft. You are a franchise that is in dire need of this position, and you are absolutely losing sleep because you're like, this is just the driest draft at this position. I can't believe this is the year that I'm in need of it. That position's what?
3: Linebacker. Uh, Off-ball linebacker. This is not a good year. I don't. I don't have one rated in my top fifty right now. Um, it is just such a, a weak year, and there are good players. Like there are going to be guys that are drafted. You know, Junior Colson from Michigan, Jalen Ford from Texas. They're going to be round two, round three guys that play as rookies, but they all have enough question marks in their game that you're not drafting them high. So uh, I would also I would throw out interior offensive line. It is not a good year you know there's gonna be guys drafted at tackle who get moved into guard or center and, and then maybe they get drafted a little bit higher than than what we're talking about right here but for i'm talking like guys who played center or played garden college you know we might have two or three in the first two rounds so pretty weak group uh, there and it's a weak group of running back which i know is pertinent with jonathan taylor being a free agent uh it, it's we're not going to see two running backs drafted in the first round this year like we did last year. I I will be shocked, guys. I'll I'll buy a round of beers for all of us at, at Matt and Miller's if a running backs drafted in the first round.
0: You know the Taylor was interesting because I remember this time a year ago, Matt. We thought like Jonathan Taylor was kind of crazy for starting to insinuate trying to get bit, you know, twelve fourteen million a year at the running back position, and then I was stunned when the Colts extended him at the you know they basically gave him the amount he wanted um which maybe that's why maybe they were able to look at it and go look there aren't a million of these guys growing on trees especially this year right so maybe that helped him out yeah. and it was the the seller's market into essentially for free agents at running back i'm curious of this in your opinion and we'll say the last five years or so is there a player matt that came into the league that kind of broke the mold at their position and thus, as a result, changed the trajectory of the way that position was analyzed or drafted. In other words, they didn't have the things going into it that people anticipated was necessary at that position, but their particular success then opened the door for other players to be analyzed that would not have been before that player was drafted.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's Patrick Mahomes. I really do. Um, Mahomes coming out of Texas Tech. Like, I wish people could be honest with themselves and we could talk about Mahomes the way we did in March of 2017 instead of how we have to now, because um, I had him rated as someone that would be a good starter. But he was coming out of a system he'd never called a play in the huddle. Uh, He had never been under center. Uh, Like, there was so much he hadn't done. And so you had all these questions about this dude who played in this. Backyard football kind of system. His lower body mechanics were terrible. He was, everything was off platform. He's not incredibly fast. And it felt like every play he was like running around, drifting away from pressure. And you watched him and you thought, okay, this kid has the strongest arm I'd maybe seen at that time, uh, fantastic field vision. But I mean, there were a lot of questions about, does that kind of football really work in the NFL? And, again, let's remember it's 2017. We're coming off Manning and Brady and, you know, all these, like, pocket passers. And then you've got Mahomes, who's 6'2", 215 pounds. You know, he's not your 6'5", 230-pound, you know, Greek god-playing quarterback. So he's he's certainly changed things. And I think to the point that we do see, you know, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, uh, Jordan Love right now, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts, players like that who are so good at making plays second effort or making plays off platform are, are getting a chance now. Whereas I think before Mahomes, a lot of those guys, we and I used to say it, like that, that style just doesn't work. So I think the NFL has really changed to embrace, you know, that style of play.
2: NFL draft analyst Matt Miller of ESPN is our guest. Matt, I've never shied away from this. I'm an offensive first guy. I love the sexiness of the aspect of the NFL like a lot of people do. So when I see a first-round pick utilized on a defensive weapon, I'm not always bought in, but eventually I'll get there. That is to say, let's say the Colts decide to focus on defense with their pick in the first round. When you look specifically at cornerbacks or an edge rusher, where is the most bang for your buck at this stage if they decide to go that direction with their first pick
3: yeah i think at 15 like we talked about we're going to see a lot of quarterbacks wide receivers offensive tackles come off the board that's good news if you are you know a defensive mentality in this draft i think Tyrion arnold the corner from alabama you're probably crossing your fingers hoping he's there he's he's been my top rated corner since mid-season uh he is fantastic i mean super athletic a great tackler uh, he's smart. He's poised. He's six foot two, 200 pounds. I mean, he is, he's like ready to go. He he could walk in and be, you know, rookie of the year type corner. I, I really think he's that good. Uh, if you're looking at edge rusher, Dallas Turner from Alabama is going to be off the board by 15, but uh, Leatu Latu from UCLA, as long as the medicals check out, uh, he had to retire medically for a year because of a neck injury at Washington. Goes to UCLA. He's played the last two years. He has 23 and a half sacks uh, in two years. He had 21 and a half tackles for a loss this past year. He's 6'5, 260. Like he's he's ready to go. So as long as the medicals look good on Alatu, that is a. That he's, you know, he's not going to be the sexiest guy at the combine in terms of Twitch and 40 time, but watch his tape. And there's not a better pass rusher in the country in terms of hand use and understanding leverage and angles. I mean, he is a professional path rusher
0: coming out of college. I'm going to ask the dumbest question you're going to get all day, Matt. For those, myself included, that hear the term but aren't totally sure what it means, elaborate twitch.
3: Yeah, so it's that ability to go from a standing position to a moving position. How fast does that happen? You know, when So you, basically like hip like, swivel? I mean, it, it, or like first step quickness, burst. You know, to gotcha. me twitch is like when you have a muscle that's not moving and you fire it, how fast does it fire? Um, So for pass rushers, you know, think about how fast Aaron Donald gets into the backfield. Uh, That, that to me, is twitch.
0: Do you find with linemen, offensive linemen, that there are guys that are either great run blockers and terrible in the pass or vice versa? or, Or are we in an era now with just the overall athleticism of big guys that it's usually pretty true for a guy either side or either discipline?
3: No, I think coming out of college, there's a lot of guys who are one or the other. And you, we're seeing more athleticism on the offensive line than I've ever seen before. However, there's, you know, you're coming out of, like, okay, if you go to Notre Dame or Ohio State or Iowa, Alabama, you're probably pretty well versed in everything. But, you know, if you're coming out of a lot of other schools, you know, BYU and Houston. They both have a left tackle this year that could be drafted pretty highly. But, you know, they're running spread all day like that's all they do so these guys are not used to nfl style blocking in the run game so i think that is you know a, a big question mark for a lot of these guys and it, it does seem like run blocking especially is just not being coached very well at the college level and there's a lot of a lot of really really good athletes but and when it comes to the run game you know their their accuracy at the second level is bad they're stiff uh, it just it, it hasn't clicked completely so there, are, we could spend hours talking about tackling and, and offensive line play have gotten so much worse in football, um, and especially in college football. But run blocking is—it feels like a lost art right now.
0: What position, Matt Miller, ESPN? What position that has? What position amongst the camp misses has the highest percentage of miss?
3: Oh man. I mean, that quarterback definitely does. Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost 50, 50 at this point, especially right. drafted early. Um, I think that's a big one. I still think the corner is maybe the second hardest position for players to transition to the, to the NFL, because in college you can so often, you can get away with just being a great athlete. And in the NFL, it's so much about pattern recognition and, you know, understanding leverage and where you're supposed to be. And so much of the NFL right now is option routes. You know, it's a, the wide receiver is reading you as a defender and making a decision based off that. And that is so hard to cover. So I, I think corner's getting to be one of those spots too where, you know, we like Derek Stingley Jr. in Houston really struggled as a rookie. Well, this year he was fantastic. And you could see that he just needed time to like almost mentally catch up after not playing a lot in his last year at LSU. So uh, corner's one of those things we got to give guys time to acclimate.
0: And which position historically, Matt, allows you the biggest flexibility of gamble because it has the highest percentage of diamond and the rough guys
3: yeah, I, running back he's definitely up there but outside of running back i mean edge rusher you know where you can find good edge rushers uh, all throughout i mean look the rams rolled guys out in the first round of the playoffs the, you know the colts haven't found
0: one in 15 years
3: yeah i don't i don't know what's going on there but <laughs> it's not for lack of trying they've thrown right. somebody first to second round fix it guys uh, he's gonna hit on one eventually uh, uh i feel good about that but i i think it's knowing your type you know is, that's a big part of it if you are convicted in the the type of pass rusher you need you can find a guy that fits that mold and you can find them in in rounds you know three four five six seven it's the first-round guy is harder because you're expecting, you know, that guy to play 80% of the snaps and become a pro bowler. That part's harder. But finding a, you know, a James Houston, who was really good for the Lions, as, you know, I think a seventh-round pick, like you can you can find those complementary pieces pretty late in the draft.
0: It's so interesting to me, Matt, because, you know, there are, like, where a guy is selected oftentimes then sets the standard on how they're judged. Like, Pay and Dio. Are they're sufficient players. I mean, they're they're, they're good players that are capable of having really good games, but because they were first- or second-round investments, they're held to a different standard than if they had been drafted in the same spot – or, excuse me, if they had the same numbers and were drafted in the sixth round, we'd be sitting here talking about what a great pick they were. You know what I mean? Absolutely.
3: Yeah, and interestingly enough, guys drafted in the first round will always get more opportunities. You know, um if Carson Wentz was a seventh round pick, he'd be he'd have a, a side job, he'd be selling real estate right now. You know, but you're a first round pick, you're gonna continue to get so many more opportunities. So um it it definitely the expectations are higher, but you know, somebody's gonna keep giving you a chance because at one point you had the talent, you were seen as good enough to be a first round pick.
2: He is Matt Miller, covers the NFL draft for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at NFL Draft Scout. Matt, thanks so much for making the time, and hopefully this is the first of a handful of conversations in the countdown to April. You bet, guys. Thanks so much.
0: And joining us now on the show, I'm always happy when he can join us. You saw him last night, and Jordan Cornett may have felt, I doubt through the television screen he felt it, but I gave him like an air virtual high five when they went to the halftime report after Indiana and Purdue's First half and Jordan Cornett you had very direct things to say and I loved it because you were dead on just about Indiana's lackadaisical approach to the first half I just thought and granted they made a run there to start the second half but I thought Indiana looked totally unprepared and uninterested in the first half last night and uh, I was relieved to see you say that that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you basically saw had the same observation, right?
4: Yeah, Jake, it's good to be on with you, Jimmy, and the boys. I, uh, look, I-, I watch these games, and just because I have the luxury and the luck to be able to sit up there at a desk and be on a national broadcast, I'm a fan like everybody else. And when I'm watching, I see it the same way the majority of people watching see it, and it was a flat performance. And it was a group that I felt like maybe history was lost upon these Hoosiers the history of what Indiana basketball is and should be uh, what this rivalry is and what an opportunity is presented to them on their home floor to play against their heated rival and an opportunity to knock off number two. And for them to be that flat going into the break, look, I'm never going to support fans booing inside the building. You're all in this together when you're there and you're the fan base, but frustration uh, that is to be expected when you look like that, in that first half. And And I just, in watching, there's a frustration for me who's neutral in the approach when watching, just like, I can't believe Indiana's coming out like this. Now, I will also add, having Warren and Baco get in that early foul trouble, uh, I-, I thought Coach Woodson uh, made a-, a questionable decision to decide to sit them as long as he did, lacking the firepower and resistance on that team in depth to say, I'm going to sit these guys for 10 minutes of regulation. It felt like the game was lost during that time but the other guys that were on the floor you got to compete at a higher level i'm watching zach edie at seven foot four dive on the ball dive on the floor for loose balls at seven foot four that's a long way down that's the type of energy i want in a game like that
0: i thought the most encapsulating moment of the game jordan was exactly that you've got zach edie the national player of the year that's having a dominant performance and There's a loose ball, and he's going down for it. And Kalil Ware, who is at his second stop because the coach at his first stop, I think, had issue with his energy at all times, is kind of standing there watching him do it. And I thought that right there, like if you wanted to go and get Ansel Adams to take a photograph that encapsulates Indiana Purdue, that was it right there.
4: Yeah, and I I think that's where the – look, I'm never going to question the ability – of kids from 18 to 22 years old. You know, I wasn't an All-American, so I'm not going to sit up there uh, from some ivory tower and throw stones. That would be inaccurate. That would be disingenuous. Uh, but the one thing I did every time I stepped on the floor was played with a great deal of effort because I understood the opportunity presented to me to represent the program I played for, which was Notre Dame. And I took great pride in that. And I'm watching that first half, and I'm thinking, does Indiana think they're playing, and I won't name a university to denigrate them, but are they think they're playing somebody lesser than their heated rival. I mean, I think about the moments in Indiana-Purdue, and I'm like, these guys aren't getting it. And so I felt the responsibility to speak for everybody watching because it's the same. Twitter rarely, let's put it this way, guys, Twitter rarely agrees with anything a broadcaster says or anybody says. And what everybody watching is saying, Yeah, I agree with that Cornette guy. He might be an idiot, but he's right here. I think it was pretty obvious that's an unacceptable performance from the Hoosiers just in terms of, a sheer
2: effort. Jordan Cornett is our guest. Jordan, I agree with you and Jake on all points in regards to the effort level, in regards to the plays that you can easily point to boom, boom, boom for where Purdue was more focused, more engaged, more electric than Indiana was over the course of that contest. That said, even if all those effort plays are made, my thought going into that game, albeit I was hopeful that they would hang around was Purdue's the better team. Purdue has the better big. Purdue has not even a conversation of them having better guards, and they're more a cohesive unit. Now, this isn't necessarily a path I'm trying to take us on for an indictment against IU or an indictment against Mike Woodson, but they are clearly a flawed team, especially when it comes to the modern elements of the game of having high-level guards, of being able to not be like, efficient on like four of 10 from three, but like a 12 from 16, that's just not the way they play. It's not the way they're built in terms of this iteration of them. So my question for you is where's is the line between hey, show a little pride and no, this is really a flawed team. What else did you expect to happen against a number one, in this case, number two, Jimmy, team in the country? Jimmy,
4: Jimmy, 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 let me stop you there. Uh, when you, when you played, when Purdue played Nebraska, those two even teams, when Purdue played Northwestern, is Northwestern a flawed team? Were those two teams that were similar? Does Northwestern have a big similar to Zach Eady? Does Nebraska have
2: a big similar to Zach Eady? I would argue they're way better from beyond the arc in almost every metric than Indiana is right now.
4: Did you did you watch those two games? I did. Yes. If you, if, if you watch those two games, it was clear to you that Northwestern defensively brought a level of effort. Yes, to that I would zone. agree with that. It would also be in watching Rink Mask defensively along with help side defense set the tone that Zach Eadie's not just going to post up on the low block and get whatever he wants. Did Nebraska shoot the lights out? Absolutely. Did Northwestern make timely shots? For sure. But the foundation to beat Purdue is we're not going to let Zach Eadie walk in here and go for 30 and 20. That's just not going to be how it goes. He's going to have to earn it. And when you've got guys that are fighting defensively, it's infectious. It leads to better offense. It leads to opportunities to hit shots. Look, let's not forget, Indiana played that second half even with Purdue. If that effort comes out in the first half, it's a different ballgame. But if you're not ready to play against the number two team in the nation for tip, you find yourself chasing, you're never going to be good enough to come back against Purdue down a 20 spot. You just have to be ready from tip. Could Indiana have won that game despite their flaws? Absolutely they could. This Purdue team is not Indestruct- like they, they, they can be beat. It's just a matter of the mindset going in. Indiana, for certain, does not have the shot makers. But Indiana defensively has an ability, and their two best players, arguably, are their bigs. And those bigs, I look at Khalil Ware's second foul in that game, that's indicative of their mindset. Zach Eadie's point blank range, he's ground zero, he's about to lay the ball in. What are you doing fouling right there? You've got to stay eligible in this game. You can't violate there. Give up two, fight for the next play. But you're not locked in to understand what it's going to take to beat them, and that's where you lost the game, the first 20 minutes.
0: Jordan, I thought a pivotal moment of the game, Jordan Cornett is our guest, I thought a pivotal moment was, and I thought it was a stroke of brilliance, when Matt Painter, you know, Trey Galloway, we talked to Rob Blackman earlier about this, but Trey Galloway started to kind of get going. The crowd gets into it. And then Painter goes and pulls Ethan Morton out and says, go in there. And I thought he really at that point kind of took the ball out of Galloway's hands and that restalled Indiana's offense to the point where Purdue was able to push it back again. But that comes with, and I want you to elaborate on this, kind of that mentality. It's not every program out there, Jordan, that can pull a guy that's been a starter and been a good player for a program that then is only getting 13 minutes in a game and finds a way to contribute and alter the game without scoring the basketball. To me, that speaks to what Matt Painter has instilled in West Lafayette. But I wanted you to elaborate on whether you agree or disagree.
4: Well, well, two things there I want to touch on, Jake, is for one, I, I love Trey Galloway's game. I know he hasn't been the most efficient this year. I know maybe he hasn't taken the step as a leader production-wise and efficiency-wise people would like. But that young man competes on every possession. And and I, I enjoy watching Trey Galloway. I know they wish he shot a more efficient clip from three. He was productive in this game last night, and he always brought the fight. Uh, he wasn't efficient with his shot making, uh, but he was out there competing. As for Purdue, I think anybody that really knows the game, and I know I'm talking to guys here that do, Matt Painter's always had the proper culture in that place. They've always been relevant. They've always been a, a team that is going to, uh, be a tough out, and they've grown incrementally over his what is it, 17 years now? I, I think with Matt Painter there, which is it's crazy, and it might even be more if I'm if I'm wrong on the number there. Um, but what Pe- Painter's always had is a fortified locker room, guys that play for each other, connected group. And when you're winning, you would hope you've got guys that understand. Hey, let me master my role because it's not like we're on a 10 game losing streak. It's not like we're playing for the NIT. We've got a special thing here. And those guys in that locker room understand that. And I think it showed in that second half when you did see uh, for a moment in time that fight from Indiana, because there was a fight coming out in the second half. But this was a Purdue team that collectively said, we're going to keep them underwater. We're going to take that punch and we're going to spawn with a counter punch. And that's a group that's cut from potential uh, championship ilk. That, That is a team that's playing for a Big Ten championship position to do that and also position to go out there and go deep in a march and ideally win a national championship. I saw a lot on a floor that has not been kind to Purdue in the second half and in, in, in kind to of Purdue since Woodson's arrived, and I watched them play great basketball in that second half. So you do have to tip your cap uh, to this Purdue team and the counter punches that we saw time and time again.
0: Jordan, I'm going to make you feel old, man. 19th year as the head coach of the Boilermakers. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? That's amazing, actually. Um, 19th year. It's crazy. I mean, he's one of the best coaches in college basketball. And I I do want to be
4: clear here. I'm not poo-pooing on Indiana. Woodson has forgotten more basketball than a lot of people could ever know. And I I don't want to look like I'm coming down on him because that's not my position. That's not what I do for a living. I think this was more on just the effort from his guys. And I I think I'm sure – and I didn't see any of the post game sound from Coach Woodson. I'm sure he was upset with how his guys came out in that game. And I'm sure he felt a little bit better with how they came out and fought in that second half. And then they were just overwhelmed, to Jimmy's point. The better team at that point with how the game had played out, all the effort you exert to just come back into it, it's simply too much. And Purdue has depth. They've had more talent. And at that point, you have to come out there and almost play a perfect game for certain against Purdue. And Indiana spotted him the first twenty.
0: Jordan, you know you are a guy that played college basketball at a big program. Obviously, your brother played college basketball. Let me give you an Indiana basketball fan perspective, and then I want you to tell me from a player's perspective if it's a valid concern for Indiana fans or if it's like old guy yelling at clouds, okay? And that is I, – I think that we – and I do this a lot myself, Jordan. I, I think that we have the ability – from the couch sometimes we get envious because we see players and we think if i was given that opportunity here's how here's what i would do with it or here's how i would play the game and we 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 try to put ourselves in that position and we become envious and we become judgmental and etc and i think there are a lot of people fans that have such a passion for indiana basketball that they automatically assume that that means a 19 year old kid is super passionate about Bob Knight and the five titles and Branch McCracken. And in reality, those players are looking at Indiana as a means and a platform to get themselves to where they want to be as basketball players in terms of the next level, and that irks people. Now, is that too judgmental to say, or is there something to be said for players that don't truly understand the quote-unquote history of Indiana and therefore – their efforts are lacking in critical moments?
4: Uh, it's a great question, uh, Jake. It's a dynamic one. And in certain programs, I think part of the recruiting process is recruiting guys and educating them on where they're coming. Um, with, with Notre Dame basketball, I love uh, where I played, but I don't think that's a huge part of Notre Dame is understanding you know, all the long lineage of what's been achieved here. And Digger Phelps did a lot of great things there. And we do have Austin Carr. We do have Adrian Daly. We do have great players. Indiana's different. And I look at the Indianas. I look at the Dukes. I look at the Carolinas. I look at the Michigan States. And you can run through the Blue Bloods. I look at UCLA, and I do think those coaches are tasked with something different. They're tasked with recruiting guys that understand what Indiana basketball is. And look, times change. The, 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 the sport has certainly changed with transfer portal and NIL and stuff, but culture and what wins in certain places is timeless. And understanding if you're going to go play for Tom Mizzo on Michigan state, you're going to play with a level of physicality. If you go play at Duke, you understand what comes with it both on the court and off the court with, with how you've got to represent yourself as a Duke guy. And you're playing there to, to re- represent that long lineage that goes on to become pros and, the expectations with it. Those expectations are different at certain places. And I understand Indiana hasn't won a title since, uh, What am I about to be wrong, Uh, 87? Is that right? That's correct. 87, the last time Indiana's won a title. That's a long time ago. But I look on the other side at Notre Dame football, a place that also hasn't won a title since 88, and those players are made to understand who's played before them and what it means. And I do think an educational uh, part of, Portion to when you bring guys in like look this is where some of the greats have played and this is what indiana basketball is this is who bobby knight was and this is what we're about that's part of it when you're going to play at indiana and all these people that might say you know that was a long time ago well no that stuff's timeless and when you're at indiana you understand there's something different about games like last night and you take it to another level when you're playing in games like last night Um, I I look down the road at at Butler basketball and, you know, Butler's always got to play with the chip on their shoulder. Now it hasn't necessarily been like that the last few years, but the type of players that go there, there's a underdog mentality that comes with it. That's what you embrace supposedly when you go there. So I'm a big believer in uh, Jake, a little bit of both. You've got to understand what you're signing up for when you go to Indiana. It's also part of the staff's responsibility to ingrain that culture in them. And maybe it means bringing some of those old guys back to remind them so they understand the significance of it, if that makes sense.
0: When you look at, Jordan, like when your brother went to Butler, Joel Cornett, and, and that group, right? I mean, Brandon Miller, and, you know, there were there were guys there that, that just had that mentality, kind of that chip, right? But what they did was – they elevated Butler into a whole new arena of the basketball program. I mean, Butler had history, don't get me wrong. Billy Shepard and Tony Hankel. But in terms of from the national perspective, they were the footprint that then went on with Brad Stevens and and the rest of the history that was made. How do you you think, like when your brother went there, do you think they knew we're going here because here's what we're going to do? Or did they just happen to almost by stroke or by design, get like five or six guys that all shared the same mentality and chip that then came together because they were willing to put it all into one basket? Uh,
4: They brought special guys in. Uh, Those guys were special. Archie's, my brother, Brandon Miller. They got lightning in a bottle. Now there was a foundation there. LaVal Jordan, Ryland, Hanji, Thomas Jackson. Like, those guys – had set a tone that this is a, a pretty good team, but then they brought in uh, you guys that wanted to put on the war paint, go out there and get after it. Like my brother came into Butler having had booze at Cincinnati St. Xavier, our high school, when he's at the free throw line in the in the in the state tournament, talking about where is Butler? That stuck with my brother to a degree that was he was incensed. So when he arrived, he was determined from day one. People are going to know who Butler is. And some know the stories about Todd Licklider putting, you know, up in the locker room uh, in the preseason going into what I believe is my brother's junior year. Let's make the NCAA, going into my brother's senior year. Let's make the NCAA tournament. My brother is like, what, what kind of, what kind of crap is make the NCAA tournament? We're here to win a national championship and everybody wanted to temper those expectations. That was the mentality is no, 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 nobody's going to shortchange us. And, that was infectious amongst that group. Now, did they win a national championship that year? No, but they got to the Sweet 16, and from there they ended up going to Final Fours. But it started with a belief from my brother and his group. It wasn't just my brother, but it was a couple of like-minded guys like him. And that's a little bit more difficult to do here, because the four-year guy thing doesn't really happen anymore because of the portal, because of the ability to go pro, because of NIL. You're, you're getting guys that are stepping out there for maybe a year or two, but you can still find those culture guys that congeal with the other ones that have that like-minded mentality. Culture is what wins in college basketball. And if you're going to get guys in the portal, you got to get guys you know are going to fit what you want your culture to be. And if those guys are talented but don't understand your culture, you don't have a chance. And so a lot of programs are becoming further away from what they are because they've conceded some of that stuff the teams that are special the teams that are playing for what's in front of the jersey and are playing for the guy next to them not for what my nil deal is not for the ability to go pro or not one foot out the door for the better opportunity if coach gets on me culture above all else is what's winning in collegiate athletics right now and butler had that back in the day
0: okay lastly indiana ncaa tournament team yes or no
4: I mean, yeah, but come on, man, Jake, that, that's where we're at with Indiana basketball. Oh, I know. I mean, no, trust me. I, I, I hate that that's the question, and and again, I think it's also the challenge of the landscape now to consistently be what they've been, but yeah, they're they're an NCAA tournament team, but is that going to make everybody listening happy? <laughs> I, I don't think so, so I, I think they've got to get a lot better. I think they've got to find a way, which is really difficult with what Jimmy's talking about, the ability for them not to make shots. You, you got to be at a. You got to be at a. Have shot makers, not shot takers. That's a big part of this too, and the margin for error is so slim for Indiana because of that. I think they're playing to make the NCAA tournament, but right now, it feels like a first weekend team at best.
0: You're the best, man. Great stuff last night, in particular in the studio. Just with, I loved the candor and I loved the honesty in breaking down the game at the half. Always appreciate the time, Jordan. Great talking to you guys. Have a great show. All right, Jordan Cornett, again, last night on the coverage on Peacock, the halftime of the Indiana-Purdue game. So let me read for you last night what yours truly, at Jake Query, that's J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y, what I wrote on Twitter, and then let me read you some of the clown responses. And, yeah, I'll be that guy. I'm not normally that guy. I'm going to be that guy, right? Last night, I sent the following tweet. I'm fine with flipping Bruce Brown and picks for Siakam, but Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, and maybe even Buddy Heald would be off limits to me in terms of salary matches. So let me read you some of the replies. This from Don G. So basically, you want him for free. Good one. This from Peter Yiannopoulos, who is an NBA writer in Toronto. Raptors got Barrett and quickly for OG, but no way Indiana sends Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, or Buddy Heald for an NBA all-star like Siakam. You are high comedy. This from realistic Raptors fan. None of these dudes will be half of what Siakam already is. Most likely, Jarris Walker will never reach all NBA levels. Same with Ben Matherin. Stop hyping up your, your mid-roster. Pasco's elite, and you'll find out soon enough. Right about that part. Now, Eddie Garrison, if you could, please. Play it for us. Jimmy Cook, read what's out there.
2: This from Adrian Wojnowski about five minutes ago. Breaking, the Indiana Pacers are finalizing a trade to acquire all-star forward Pascal Siakam in a deal that will send Bruce Brown, Jordan Wara, and three first-round picks the Toronto Raptors. New Orleans will be a third team in the deal, sending Kyra Lewis to the Raptors. Woj updated that tweet. Indiana is sending two 2024 first rounders and a 2026 first, along with Bruce Brown and Jordan Awara. So
0: wait a minute,
2: New Orleans will also send a second round pick. So to Jordan
0: Indiana. Wara was the salary match. So yeah. what you're telling me is Indiana clearly said they'd be willing to flip Bruce Brown and picks, but in terms of the salary match, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, and Buddy Heald, they did not want to part with. Right? It would appear Jake Stradamus strikes again. Gee, what do you know? Might be that Jake knew what the hell he was talking about. So all these clowns in Toronto, where are you? I told you. That's what it comes down to. Right? You did. Thank you, Matt Linville. Look, Jake Quarry already knew. Thank you. I don't have the...
2: uh we're supposed to have a track built in here, so you take your victory lap. But we didn't have the opportunity with the funds
0: and the budget from the company to get that. The so. carpet of that was worn out from the last exactly. Guy. Right. Yes. Did you get a hold of Evan? Okay. So, Evan Sidry. I always forget if it's Sidry or Sidry. I, I I like to say Sidry sidery so that I'm correct both ways. Is that cool? I don't mean to be disrespectful.
5: Oh no, no worries, no worries at all. Sidry. Okay. So listen, Evan.
0: i To me, and and I don't know if it's coincidence. I really don't. But and I. I caught a ton of heat for this because I was saying that if I'm Indiana, I do not part with, and I know that Jalen Smith, they've got to resign long-term. I get it. Buddy Heald is an important locker room guy for them. I get it. And Isaiah Jackson, I think, you know, somebody was like, dude, you're holding on to your number three center. Isaiah Jackson becomes, he's an important player because he's young, right? And I think that he's part of their their future mix. The real question in all of this, I guess two-part question, Evan. The first is, do you think Indiana held out a little bit to protect not getting rid of those guys? And secondly, is Siakam coming here as a rental, or are they going to lock him in because his contract's up at the end of the year?
5: Oh, To answer your second part there real quick, Jake, Adrian Wojnarowski just put this out about 10 seconds ago. that Pascal Siakam is very excited about coming to Indiana, and it's very, very likely there's a under-the-table handshake agreement between both those sides long-term. So it seems like Pascal Siakam, for the price they paid, essentially being for four or five years, Jake, I think it's a home run what they just did.
0: Okay, now, secondly, do you think that Indiana played hardball in terms of any of the auxiliary pieces that were sent?
5: I think a little bit. I think you can kind of play the game because you know Toronto had little to no leverage here. You have Pascal Siakam, who's on an expiring contract, who's let it be known behind the scenes that he did not want to extend or resign. He, had to pick, he wanted to take his own team, so to say, to potentially go to. And luckily for the Pacers, that was them. But I think then not being able to get up any of those guys, like Buddy Heald, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, Obi Toppin, you now have an interesting, I think, in my opinion, J.K. wall jam there at the four spot. And I do wonder now, even more so than keeping those guys out of a deal, are the Pacers done yet? And now with this kind of move with a little bit of assets they gave up in this, you still have Obi Toppin and Jalen Smith and some other guys. I would not be shocked at all, Jake, they make another move here soon. I think just the way the front court is in balance right now with all these guys, I would not be shocked at all if they made another move here before the deadline, just with the way it's going. So I think it's a Home run for them, the value they get up there. And I think not be able to get one of those young big guys or even Ob Toppett on that too, fantastic, fantastic value. And for a team like Indiana, to only get draft picks here in an expiring salary. I think right off the bat, that's an A-plus grade for me.
2: Evan Sidery is our guest, covers the NBA at large. Evan, you mentioned the thought of maybe a, a handshake or a hush-hush agreement or something of a, hey, don't worry, we're going to get an extension done. I know you mentioned there's been subsequent tweets about where things would stand. Bobby Marks of ESPN highlights the fact that we already knew he's on an expiring contract, but he'd be eligible to sign a two-year, $81.5 million extension with the Pacers up until June 30th. But arguably more importantly with this trade, they inherit the bird rights for Pascal Siakam, In other words, the ability to spend more than any other team can on the open market. That'd be a five-year, $247 million contract in July what makes more sense both for Pascal Siakam and the Pacers as we start to approach the negotiations phase in the coming months?
5: So I think what I would do in this situation, I think for both sides, they're going to play this out and let it ride. I'd be very surprised they do a two-year extension upon agreement here because I think Siakam wants to see how works in Indiana and vice versa. I do think something along the middle between that, not giving Siakam a five-year, $247 million deal, I don't think that's a good idea from Indiana's point of view because he'll be 35, 36 years old by the end of that contract. But I would try to maybe go for a four-year deal, four-year full max agreement that would put Siakam at his 30, age 34, 35 season. It gives you one less year as far as if it, if it does go bad, you have protections there on it a little bit. So I would try to thread the needle if I was a Pacers here. Let this play out the next couple months – Hopefully Siakam and Halliburton make instant magic on court and they'll be a really good team and convince Siakam to stay long-term. I think it'd be more so of a four-year deal, which would be $192 million compared to 5-247. I think that's probably the Pacers' appetite here. let not good that fifth year. But if, it, if they go really well here, let's say the Pacers get on a hot streak but Halbert and Halliburton comebacks back soon, and this dynamic duo they have now, Siakam and Halliburton, is just unstoppable on the court. Maybe they feel comfortable enough to go that five years. But I would probably lean towards they try to do something more in the four-year range.
0: Do you think there's any chance, Evan, and I'm almost embarrassed to ask this because it sounds so elementary, but Pascal Siakam, I don't know how many people realize this, Pascal Siakam's brother played for IUPUI. Does familiarity with market and perhaps even him talking to him come into play in any way, shape, or form in Siakam's desire to actually want to stay here? I think that's a
5: fair question, Jake. I think really the biggest selling point for this Pacers team, and I think we all know the answer here, is Tyrese Halliburton. I think having the ability to go play with Tyrese Halliburton, a guy can give you 12, 13 assists per game, an elite offensive score on top of that. He's going to spoon-feed Pascal Siakam the best looks he's had since the NBA Finals run. They had Kawhi Litter and Kyle Lowry on that roster. And Siakam was not fully developed yet as far as the player he is today. I would not be stunned at all if we see Pascal Siakam come here and once Halliburton's back in the lineup. He puts up 25 points per game, seven rebounds a game, and four or five assists per game. He feels like the ideal fit here for what they're doing offensively. He'd be one of the best wing defenders throughout the bat, too. So I think definitely having familiarity with the family is a good point. I didn't even know that, Jake, so that's a good point on your end. I do think, though, Tyrese Halliburton, having the ability to sell him with the player Tyrese Halliburton I think that's going to be the huge factor here to look forward to.
0: Is Siakam a, a quick fleet of foot wing defender or is he more of a big in terms of the defense that he, in other words, can he go side to side or is he more just big body defender And you because know, admittedly, I haven't watched a lot of him in Toronto.
5: I think Siakam's a really a true hybrid in that role, Jake. He can go out and play the perimeter but now at his age, at 30 years old he's going to be, I would say he's more so in the post kind of guy. Like he's a, he's a player, now you go up against Giannis and you have a, a better chance you ever had against a guy like and Cooper. He's not going to fully stop Giannis, but he's going to give him a really good run for his money on the defensive end when he's fully locked in. I think he's more of a guy you can, you can put through on fours, fives, maybe some bigger threes. I think his mobility is a little bit less than he used to be a couple of years ago, Jake. But I think now the pace has been needing forever. A guy at 6'7", 6'9", who's around 220 pounds, who can guard those Jason Tatums, those Jalen Browns, the Jimmy Butler's of the world. And Pascal Siakam now can do that. If you add him now next to Aaron Nismith, and that's a really, really fun duo to build around. And obviously, Jairus Walker now developed behind those guys, too. And you have a really good infrastructure defensively around Tyrese Albert.
2: Evan Sidery is our guest. Evan, this will be a point of the trade that gets lost at times but will no doubt be discussed in the coming days. The Pacers were very quick when free agency opened. Bruce Brown was their guy. They wanted to acquire him. They felt like he could be a potential piece, not just in the short term, but maybe in the long term. We know there's a team option that was attached to that deal. So it ultimately would have been up to the Pacers. When you look at the brief stint with Bruce Brown, what's the overall consensus of that signing and why maybe it made the most sense to move on from him outside of just the salary components? Or was it just strictly monetary in your mind?
5: It kind of feels more on the ladder there, Jimmy, that it kind of from the very beginning it felt like a big overpay for Bruce Brown. It more fell in the range of fifteen, sixteen million dollars a year. But the Pacers had to hit their salary floor this year. They gave it all to Bruce Brown and essentially a one year deal with that team option on the end of it. And kind of this whole season, I've been expecting one of Buddy Hill or Bruce Brown to be moved in a trade to get the Pacers a win now piece like a Pascal Siakam. With it being Bruce Brown, they actually they had to send out less money than they would have before because he's only at nineteen million. Bruce Brown's at twenty two. So I helped him out in this deal, in my opinion there. But I think Bruce Brown overall, his tenure in Indiana, I would say was a solid B. He gave him a good veteran leadership, some solid offense. The defense is pretty inconsistent just based off what we saw so far, but maybe in a better, more winning environment with guys, more defense-first guys around. He'll probably look more like he did with the Denver Nuggets on a different situation. But for what he did over the few months he was in Indiana, a good veteran voice, a solid playmaker, solid scorer. I'd say it was a solid B for Brown's couple months tenure here.
0: Evan is our guest. We're talking about the fact that Pascal Siakam, it appears as though uh, is on his way to Indiana. And I want to go back to this, Evan, uh, because you touched on some of the numbers in terms of what it would cost to get Siakam to sign here beyond this year, which one would assume that Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan are thinking that because you don't want to give up a lot for what would be a rental. So if, in fact, he does sign beyond this season you have Halliburton already on a big deal I know you mentioned it off the top but I want to revisit it that would give them flexibility to get what other kind of player in terms of what they would have to retain young players already on contract you know three years from now four years from now Indiana would have what kind of flexibility or can we safely say from a splash standpoint they're done
5: I would say as far as potential splashes go, this is probably their core. I would imagine their, their big three, quote-unquote, is set in for at least the next couple of years. With Tyrese Halliburton, Pascal Siakam, and Miles Turner. If all goes well, Siakam won't be here past this season. And I think more so for the Pacers' point of view moving forward, they're not going to have any max cap space now, obviously, with Siakam on board here. And they probably won't for the next couple of years. But now you have these young pieces like Benedict Matherin, Jairus Walker, Aaron E. Smith, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson. All these young guys didn't get up in these trades, including Andrew Nemhar on top of that as well. Now you have flexibility down the road, and I'm not saying immediately, but maybe one or two years down the road, if a disgruntled star becomes available, the Pacers, even with the draft picks they get up today, they can offer a Matherin or a Jairus Walker in a big type of deal and go get a third-star player or fourth-star if you want to include Miles Turner in that mix to get this team to a really, really elite level. And that's something that's more of a long-term thought, but in the short term, you're banking on Bennett and Mathur and you're banking on Juris Walker fully to fully develop into those solid starters long term. And if they don't reach that potential, you have the flexibility not down the road to maybe offload some of those guys to get a better, more win-now piece alongside Halliburton and Pascal Siakam.
0: Any of this, Evan, indicate that Bruce Brown was just not a fit, or was it simply the fact of hey? He makes this possible. Or do you think they just looked at it and went, yeah, it wasn't working the way we thought it was going to?
5: I think, to be honest, Jake, I think they viewed Bruce Brown more as a one-year rental this whole time. I didn't really see much of a future with Bruce Brown past this season. He's a good guy to have in the locker room. He's a good veteran voice for guys that don't have any playoff or championship experience. But Bruce Brown really was just a guy to get them to their salary for the summer. And they beat out teams like the New York Knicks to get him, who wanted him as well. But when you see Bruce Brown, his fit, it wasn't the best as far as they needed an elite wing defender. Bruce Brown is a good defender, but he's not exactly great or elite. And you go ahead and upgrade him to a Pascal Siakam type of player, that's a huge win. You needs to get up three first-round picks in the process there. That's a deal if you're the a pace you do every single time, every day of the week. And I think Bruce Brown, like we mentioned, had a solid run here. But this whole time, I kind of envisioned him and Buddy Heald only being on this team past the season.
0: You know, Buddy Heald is an interesting one, Evan, because – and you know this, uh, Buddy Healed is, when it comes to Tyrese Halliburton, he's kind of his Robin. He's kind of his, his uh, like a big brother. I think he's a really good locker room guy. I think the players really like him. I think he adds levity when levity needed. And But yet, you can only pay so much for that, right? Is Buddy Healed at a point in his career where there is a team that is going to overpay him, or is there the chance that Indiana – Based on sentiment, gets kind of a discount, and Buddy Heald sticks around.
5: Yeah, I would not be shocked at all, Jake. If if Buddy Heald plays well here, if they don't try to trade him in the next month or so before the deadline to get another long term piece here pass his expiring contract for Buddy Heald I would not be shocked at all. If Buddy Heald decides to stay in Indiana past this season, and that's totally on the table. I think we we heard about in the off season, Buddy Hill wanted around twenty plus million dollars a year. The Pacers did not want to do that for an extension. But if the Pacers start winning a lot of games, if Buddy Heel fits in well and lets the Pascal Siakam off their bench, I will not be shocked at all, Jake, if they brought him back on a two- or three-year deal and had him be their sixth man, and had Ben and after potentially finally take over the reins long-term as their starting shooting guard. But if Buddy Heel buys in and signs in on, let's say, a 12 to $15 million-a-year contract after this season, the Pacers still would not be in the luxury tax. They'd own his bird rights. They'd own Siakam's bird rights. So they could play around over the cap, so to say, with their salary cap. And you can still re Buddy Hill to a deal like that, and it wouldn't impact their cap. They, could, they would still be under the luxury tax, so to say. So I'd actually not, to this trade with Buddy Hill not being included in it, I'd say there's a better chance more than ever that Buddy Hill stays in Indiana past this season.
2: Evan Sidery of Forbes covers the NBA for them and joins us with the reports the Pacers are acquiring Pascal Siakam from the Toronto Raptors. Evan, when the season started, the thought on the Pacers was they're a very high, efficient scoring team, but the defense is lackluster. It's got to improve over the last three or four weeks, give or take, you've seen a shift with kind of play style from them where it's not all about points. They've been able to find a nice blend of better defense than they were, which let's be honest, they were towards the bottom of the league at that point to more middle to lower end while not sacrificing too much offensively. Jake already asked you on the defensive side from Siakam from an offensive standpoint, when everybody's fully healthy, back and ready to roll for the Pacers, where does it place them in terms of what they want to do offensively at a high level?
0: I
5: think offensively, Jimmy, you're looking at a team like we saw in the first month or two of the season, where they could really hop back to historic levels of offensive efficiency. It's dipped a little bit, obviously, since Halliburton's been out. But you add a guy in Pascal Siakam, who is a ideal fit next to, especially Tyrese Halliburton, but also Miles Turner. Miles Turner's an ideal stretch by the play of Pascal Siakam. He's going to open up the floor even more for Siakam in driving lanes or catch and shoot situations. You add another piece that can shoot, like Buddy Hill in the equation as well. Pascal Siakam is going to have the most room to operate offensively he's seen potentially in his whole career. And that's going to open up so much for guys like Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner, everyone else in that rotation as well. I think Siakam, he might put up career best numbers pretty quickly in Indiana. I think that's an ideal fit offensively. You're talking about already a top five offense, Jimmy. I think with Siakam on board now, if all clicks like we expect it to, I think they could be easily the number one, number two offense in the NBA in short order.
0: You know, it's interesting because it makes one of two guys now probably have an expendable moving forward, and that would be Obi Toppin and or Jalen Smith. Smith is obviously on an expiring deal. Is he a guy that could get kind of overpaid in the open market, or is there the chance Indiana Ops to go that route, re-signs him, and Tobin then becomes exp- expendable?
5: Yeah, I think Excuse that now me, the yeah, they have the optionality, Jake, of really deciding on those guys. And if they want to, they could, like I mentioned earlier, move one of those guys for a veteran piece that maybe has a longer-term deal. Because I have a hard time now seeing with none of those front frontcourt pieces being be moved in this deal, how OB Toppin is going to get consistent minutes, how Isaiah Jackson and or Jalen Smith is going to get consistent minutes Could be one of those guys or the other. I would not be stunned at all if we see like potentially them shopping Toppin and one of Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith to get a more veteran wing presence in here. To, get, to have more scoring or potentially more defense off their bench. Because it feels like, to me at least, both those guys might not be on this roster past this season. The way Jalen Smith especially has been playing, Jake, he's up career best numbers. I have a very hard time seeing him accepting that player option at $5.5 million. So he could potentially double down the open market this summer. So I would be surprised if either of those guys are back this year. And that, to me, opens up the floodgates a little bit for what they could do in the trade market.
0: Forbes Sports is where you can read Evan's work. And, of course, on X Twitter, whatever you want to call it these days, E-S-I-D-E-R-Y, at E-Sidery, Evan Sidery, joining us on short notice. Much appreciated, Evan. We'll let you get back to work on this. But appreciate being on retainer immediately for us and jumping on.
5: Absolutely. Anytime, guys. Really appreciate it. All right, Evan Sidery.